Welcome, brothers and sisters, to a brand new class of Ephesians chapter 4. It's uh, supposed to say a 4. I'm sorry, I didn't change it. But it's chapter 4, living to God's glory. Again, chapter 4, living to God's glory. Now, I just, uh, just want to thank you. First of all, I thank God for this opportunity that he gives me just to be here in, thi in, in this time right now. Usually I'm, I'm in that side, but this time I'm in this side. So, and we'll tell you uh, uh, once we see you again, once we see you uh, on Sunday, I'll tell you why we had to uh, switch sides a little bit. But let's get right into it. Today, we're just going to look at section A. Today, we're just going to read section A. Why? Because I decided to break it down by sections. Section A, section B, section C. Again, this chapter isn't that very long. It's just... 32 verses. So the first, the first, um, the first section that we're going to see is section A, which is a call for unity among God's people. This section is only going to refer to uh, verses one through six. Now, if the class is a little bit short, it's because it's, it was supposed to be that way. Okay, because it, there's not a lot of information this time but we will have more information the following week. Now, we're going to begin. So, in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm sorry, we're going to read verse 1, which says this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of calling you of the calling you have received. Now we're going to enter the first, the first verse, which says the foundation of all exhortation. Now we're going to look on that word, therefore. Paul spent three chapters spelling out in glorious detail all that God did for us, freely by His grace. Now he brings all a call to live rightly, to, to live in righteousness, but only after explaining what God did for us. Now, it is, it is, it is, it, 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 some commentators, some theologians have said that Paul wrote the second half of his letters, the second half, to enforce or to uh, basically bring in doctrine. To enforce doctrine, meaning to, I'm going to speak about God's grace in the first chapters, but now I'm going to talk about the gospel. I'm going to speak about what God did in the very first chapters, but now I'm going to speak about what God can do, what God can really do for you in the present and in the future. Walk worthy of the calling with, uh, with which you were called. When we really understand how much God did for us, we will naturally want to serve and obey Him out of gratitude. Isn't that amazing? When we really understand what God has done for us, we want to serve Him with gratitude. Not because we're forced to, it's because we're thankful to Him. We have gratitude towards Him. That's why we want to serve Him. Don't take it for granted. 
the calling that he has set in your life, he will fulfill it. He has called us all. He didn't just call a few. He called many. But remember what the scripture says, many are called, but few are chosen. But let it be you part of those who are chosen and called. Because I want to be part of those people who are chosen and called. And we were all chosen and we were all called to do God's will. Right? Trapp says, now understanding who we, who we are is the foundation of worthy walk of this worthy walk. Now, Luther said this. Luther counsels men to answer all temptations of Satan with this only. Chrysostomus, some, I am a Christian. Remember, a Christian is a follower of Christ. So, he counseled, Luther said, Luther counseled men to answer all temptations that says, I am a Christian, meaning I follow Christ. I will follow Christ. And that's the way we need to understand how to walk in this, in this path, how we, are, how we need to walk, right? Trapp continues on saying, every believer is God's firstborn and so higher than the kings of the earth. Psalms 89, 27. He must therefore carry himself accordingly and not stain his high blood. Do you understand that? You need to understand who you are in God. You need to understand why you were called. You need to understand why you walk in this path. Why this path, why this walk is so worthy of being in. Verses 2 and 3. God's, the word says, <clears throat> Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. The character of the worthy of a worthy walk. With all loneliness and gentleness. Or the, as the New International Version says it, Completely humble and gentle. A worthy walk before God will, will be marked by loneliness and gentleness. By being humble and being gentle. Not a push desire to defend our own rights and advance our own agenda. Let me put it this way. It's not about what you want. It's not about what you want to do. It's not about you. It's about God. When you make it about yourself, you're not being humble. You're not being gentle. You're not right when it's about yourself. You need to remember that this walk, this path, it's all about God and His will, His purpose and desire. Not your will, not your purpose, and not your desire. It's about Him, not you. So we need to walk this path as humble as we can and as gentle as we can. But here's the thing. Being humble 
is not given. You need to be trained at it. You need to be taught. Taught to, you need to teach yourself how to be humble. We as leaders need to teach humbleness. We need to teach that. And I, ha and I, have, to, I, have, to, uh, I have to be honest with myself. Sometimes there's a little bit of pride going on. I'm not as humble as I want to be. But the reality is, is that I'm being perfected every single day. I'm perfectly imperfect. Even though I don't like it, even though there, you must, your, your pride is too big, you're too proud, you need to let God be God and let Him take over. We need to get used to different. And that is different. The walk of God is different than ours, right? Before Christianity, the word loneliness or being humble also always had a bad association to it. In the minds of many, it still does, but is a glorious Christian virtue that comes in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 10. It means that we can be happy and content when we are not in control or steering things our way. It's not you. It's not being in your control. When you come to the feet of Christ, you need to give the reins of your life to Jesus. But sometimes we don't want to humble ourselves. And that is where we fall and we fail. I'm not speaking some, some outrageous things. I'm just saying something so basic. Being humble is a Christian virtue. Our greatest example is Jesus Christ. He came to this world and humbled himself, becoming a servant. He had a heart of a servant that he obeyed till death and death by cross. That is the best example that you and I have of being humble. We need to be taught how to be humble. And we need to apply it and we need to practice. We need to be trained. It's difficult. Because sometimes your flesh doesn't want to. But that's when the Spirit comes in. Long-suffering, bearing with one another. We need this so that the inevitable wrong that occurs between people and God's family will not work against God's purpose of bringing all things together in, Christ, in Jesus, illustrating through His current work in the church. Right? That long-suffering, bearing with one another, suffering with one another, you know, having that same feeling with one another. It is very important. Chrysostom defined long-suffering as the spirit that has power to take revenge, but never does. It is a char characteristic of forgiving, of a forgiving, generous heart.
long-suffering. In other words, being humble. It's a nice characteristic to have. Having a generous and forgiving heart. Sometimes it's hard to forgive others. But we must do what Jesus did. Again, I return back to the best example I can think of. He forgave all those people that had sinned. And He forgave those who were nailing Him to the cross. I know it's hard to, to, to forgive but we must do so because we're going to grow. If you read it again, it's defined as a spirit that has power to take revenge, but it never does. Meaning that if they do something bad to you, you never do anything. You're going to cast out that bad feeling and just forgive them. Right? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This humble, forgiving attitude towards each other naturally fulfills the gift of the unity of the Spirit. We must endeavor to keep this unity. We must work to keep this unity. We did not create it. Yeah, a lot of people out there are saying, what? I thought I, I, I was the factor of, of unity. No, you are not. Because <laughs> you didn't create this unity. God never commands us to create unity among believers. He has created it by His Spirit. Our duty is to recognize it and keep it. <laughs> you didn't create unity, brother, and sister that is listening to me right now. You didn't create it. It's the Spirit of God that unifies us all. It, it's what unites us. It's what brings us together. Is that common factor of the Spirit of God. But it's our job to recognize His effect and to keep it. To, to, to basically nurture it. Because the foundation is there. But you are not the creator of that unity. You're just, you're just given the assignment to take care of it. That's it. Recognize it and take care of it. And keep it. Sustain it. Keep it. Sustain the unity of the Spirit. This is a spiritual unity, not necessarily a structural or denominational unity. It is evident in the quick fellowship among, uh, possible among Christians of different races, nationalities, languages, and economic classes. We Yes, we may have differences, whether it is language, race, nationalities, or status. 
that shouldn't define who we are. What defines us is the unity in the spirit. Not what the earth and society and the world has placed on us. Right? So we're not defined when we come to the feet of Christ. We're not defined anymore by our race, nationality, language, or our economic class. We're defined by our unity in the Spirit. We can understand this unity of the Spirit by understanding what it is not. In a sermon of his text, Charles Spurgeon pointed out some of the things that the text does not say. Let's look at it. It does not say to endeavor to maintain the unity of evil, the unity of superstition, or the unity of spiritual tyranny. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say endeavoring to keep your ecclesiastical arrangements for centralization. Hmm. It's not for your benefit. It does not say endeavoring to keep the uniformity of the spirit. Hmm. Keep it all the same. Nothing changes. No. It does not say any of those things. Right? Now, I haven't read the whole sermon for Charles Spurgeon. But if it doesn't say that, if he maintains himself in the unity of the Spirit, then he has to have a point. Right? Structural unity can even work against true, true unity of the Spirit. We can perhaps see a, the, a purpose of God has in preventing a structural unity of the church right now to keep misdirecting efforts of the church, such as ambitions for political power, from fulfillment. Now, uh, we have a lot of politicians now in churches. And um, yeah, there's some pastors that preach a lot. They preach a lot of politics. Yeah, that, you shouldn't do that. We weren't called to be a politician. We were called to preach the truth. This structural unity can work against true unity of the Spirit. Do not be misled. Do not be uh, engaged in other things. I, I know several pastors that like posting political things in their feeds, in their Instagram accounts, in their Facebook accounts. And that is to question, and that brings the question, and that allows me to speculate and question, where is your faith? Where is the truth of the gospel? Stop using politics to portray the gospel. When you should be using the gospel in order to set politics right, not the other way around. Stop trying to politicize Christianity and let the gospel take over government. You're not a politician. Forget, uh, forget about your, your, uh, you know, your political party affiliation. 
and focus on the only affiliation that you need to focus on, and that is Jesus Christ. Not a political party, not an economic status, not a prosperity doctrine, not anything else. Focus on Jesus and nothing else. Because that's the unity of the Spirit. Now Spurgeon says, it is not a desirable thing that all churches should melt into one another and become one. For the complete fusion of all churches into one ecclesiastical corporation could e inevitably produce another form of paupery. Since history teaches us that large ecclesiastical bodies grow more or less corrupt as a matter of course. Huge spiritual corporations are as a whole the strongholds of tyranny and the refuge of abuse. And it is the, only a matter of time when they shall break to pieces. So for those people that are trying to fusion churches into one, that's not a good idea. Because you already have a structure set. There's already, uh, if the church is, is running forward like the way it has been, don't try to change anything. Right? Bruce says, for the church, for the church, fellowship is which the Gentile and Jewish believers were united was no mere enrollment on a, uh, on a register of membership. It involved their union with Christ by faith and therefore their union with each other as fellowship members of his body. That's what unity is all about. We're all part of the, of the body of Christ. Plain and simple. So there's, there's nothing difficult about it. Stop over, uh, you know, exaggerating things or overcomplicating things. It's just the body of Christ. <laughs> right? We are confident, Spurgeon says, that uh, this unity is found in Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. We want unity in the truth of God through the Spirit of God. This lets us see, to seek after. Let us live near to Christ. For this is the best way of promoting unity. Divisions in churches never begin with those full of love to the Savior. Keep that last phrase in your heads and in your minds and in your hearts. Division never starts with those that love the Lord. Division starts with those who basically don't love the Lord anymore and they feel that their way is the right way. We're going to enter into verses two, uh, 4 and 6, 4 through 6. Let's read. There is one body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope when, we, when, we, when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one faith, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the description of the unity of the church. This is one body and one spirit. We have unity because of what we share in common. In Jesus, we share one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Father. Each of these common areas is greater than any potential difference. There's no difference. There, there, there's, there's nothing else to explain. It's pretty simple. Under, basically, this is the description of, one, of the church, of how we should be. 
Only one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Father. I told you it was going to be short. But it's pretty simple what we're dealing with right now. This is what the church should be. This is basically what, what, what it should be. It's the description of the unity in the church. One baptism. Something that because Paul says that there's one baptism, that the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a subsequent experience and is invalid. That is not true. But Paul only spoke here of the baptism by water, which is visible token of God's common work in every believer and thus a basis of unity. There aren't separate baptisms for Jews and Gentiles. Now, to explain uh, a little bit of what the baptism in water means is basically a public action that you are dying for the world and coming up alive in Jesus Christ. Now, baptism in water does not save you. It's just basically a public act that you are telling the world that you are surrendering to Jesus. The only way of salvation is by you confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that He died at the cross for you and that He resurrected on the third day and now He's sitting at the right hand of God in which you're going to be saved. Baptism does not save you. By baptism by water does not save you. It's just a public act that you are now saying that you are a public follower of Christ. So there's no two baptisms. We can enter into the, the controversy of, uh, well, I, I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus or I want to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're both the same. But we're not going to enter that right now. The concept of baptism is in, uh, uh, in the Holy Spirit is spoken of clearly in Matthew 3.11, Acts 1.5, and 11.16. So, uh, the concept of the baptism, again, is in the, of the Holy Spirit is spoken in Matthew 3.11, Acts 1.5, and 11.16. And now, this may be considered an initial and sometimes dramatic experience one has with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, a feeling God wants to continue through a person's Christian life. Now it is very important, brothers and sisters, to understand the unity in the Spirit and the description of the unity of the church. Please keep, these, keep this in mind and in your hearts that now more than ever we need to be united. We shouldn't be divided, we need to be united specifically in Jesus Christ. Now more than ever, we have a lot of divisions in churches. Or we have people just that they don't want to come to church anymore because they don't feel right. What I'm going to tell you is something that is, has been in my heart. Many people don't want any difference in their lives. They, they don't. They become Christians just to say, well, I'm saved, but I'm going to keep sinning. That's not what being a Christian is all about. 
I used a phrase in the beginning. And that's pretty much what the Christian life is. We need to get used to different. Get used to it. Get out of your comfort zone. God has called you to get out of your comfort zone. God has called you to do something greater and something beyond. Don't turn back to sin. And don't go back to the life you used to live. God has chosen you. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter the race or language you speak, or the, the race you, you have, the ethnicity that you are, or the, the language you speak. In God, you have to get used to it. Get used to different. And we need to be united in the Spirit. That's what unifies us all. And that is the common factor. We are one body, one person in Jesus Christ. With that, I want to end this class. Please remember that we have an in-person class at 9 o'clock uh, and, and directed by Sister Rachel Ramirez. Also, we have our in-person service at 10 o'clock. But if you don't live in the San Diego area, we do offer a live stream which will be in, in our YouTube and Facebook page. So, with that being said, I just want to thank you for this time, and may God bless you, and have a blessed week. And I'll see you here the following week. God bless.